0: hi I'm Fiona
1: and I'm Andrea and welcome to season 11 of fly on the wall. Before we get started with the interview with Daphne Lindzer make sure you follow us on social media at fly on the wall pod on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We also love hearing from you so feel free to send a message to fly on the wall at georgetown.edu. We're so excited to have Daphna Windsor as our first guest of the pod this season.
0: Daphna is currently a Spring 2022 fellow with GU Politics with a discussion group called Trust in Government. Before this, she was a managing editor
1: with NBC News. And Fiona, what did you love most about this conversation? I loved hearing about Daphne's experience on the ground
0: in Jerusalem right after college and the impact her journalism has had on
1: so many people's lives. What about you? I completely agree. Hearing her stories about reporting in conflict zones and the safety risks that came with that were absolutely wild. I yeah. agree. We
0: are so excited to have you behind the curtain of Daphne's career. So without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation. Daphna, thank you so much for being here with us today. To start off with, why did you become interested in journalism and have your reasons changed since then?
2: Fiona, thanks so much for having me. Thank you both. Um, I'm really excited to join you. Uh, You know, I started off sort of as a journalist when I was five years old. Um, My local school paper, or my my local town paper had a kids section on the weekends, Um, I'm invited kids to submit stories. uh, And I started submitting poems. And so my first byline was when I was five and I kind of fell in love with the idea. Um, I think in college, um, I pursued writing and reporting. Uh, I went to Jerusalem with the Associated Press as my first assignment. um, And I really got a sense of how meaningful reporting can be and being kind of a witness um, to, moments and events in our lives that are meaningful to voters and our fellow citizens. And I just kind of developed a passion for that sense of responsibility and accountability over time. It hasn't changed.
1: That's amazing. And your career in journalism really has led you all over the world. And I was curious, what originally drew your focus to international journalism and what first brought you to Jerusalem? that's such a good question um i think jerusalem for me
2: was i i I grew up in a place that was kind of in the middle of nowhere and jerusalem for me was the center of the universe in its own way Um, especially at that time um there was you know real conflict over over real issues and i wanted to understand them better um i really wanted to have you know, a deeper, deeper sense of the people and the disputes and what mattered. And I think i I didn't quite realize that um, going there and being a reporter there would actually make me a foreign correspondent, um, and that from there, I would be able to travel more and um, and report around the world, um, you know from from Asia and the Middle East to um, Europe later in my career to South America and, and across the Americas, um, reporting for, for, you know, for U.S. readers and citizens and voters. Um, but I, I think I was just drawn there for the, for kind of the moment. Um, I grew up knowing a lot. I thought about Jerusalem, um, going there and living there, being a reporter. With being a witness on the ground, um, you realize how little you know. Um, and I think um, that kind of humbling experience um, was also very important for me um, coming out of college.
1: And being so young, coming out of college, like in your 20s, was it difficult for you to in a sense, just pack your things and go to a foreign country. There's a language barrier. You're leaving all your friends and family. What was that like?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you put it that way, it really does sound like it was kind of a dramatic (laughs) choice to make. And for some reason, I don't remember feeling at the time that it was as consequential and as momentous as it really was. I think for me, I was ready for an adventure um, I was excited to go to a new place. Um, I There was a part of me actually that um, liked the idea of kind of leaving friends and family and kind of forging my own path in that moment. Um, you know, I I grew to miss my family a lot and my friends and was grateful when they came to visit, but I also just met new people people who were so different from me. Um, And that was really gratifying. I think um, the language barrier over time, you know, it kind of dissipated. I knew a little bit of Hebrew growing up. Um, I improved my Hebrew when I was there. I took a great Arabic course that was really an, it was sort of Arabic for foreign correspondents and diplomats. It was conversational Arabic. So I could um, I couldn't read, but I could talk to people on the street, do a kind of man-on-the-street interview, ask for directions, order lunch, um, and over time, you know, it became um, less foreign in a way, and I became kind of a part of, of that, that place in the world.
0: Yeah, and you certainly have been a journalist in times of massive change. Um, so have how have these experiences informed your approach to journalism in 2022? Um, great question. And it really is true that um, the change began
2: um, even before I, I was really almost aware of it. Um, when I graduated college and, um, you know, had been learning about, you know, international affairs and foreign relations, um, you know, there there was there was a Cold War and a Soviet Union. And by the time I really got to Jerusalem, it was just crumbling. Um, Everything I had learned in college about that, I mean, within a year was no longer relevant. Um, It was dramatically changing and in in front of in front of everyone's eyes. Um, And that change like continued, I would say the luckiest thing about being a journalist is getting to see that change. Um, I think journalists who can embrace that and understand that and report on that change. Um, we'll have um, more valuable information to share with the world. Um, you know, after the attacks of September 11th, I was in the United Nations that day. I was the UN correspondent for the Associated Press, and the building was evacuated as as much of Manhattan was. Um, and I joined this kind of parade of of basically refugees who were kind of fleeing um, Southern and Midtown Manhattan North. Um, And I felt that day um, that our jobs as journalists, as American reporters was going to change dramatically. Um, And it did. Um, American reporters overnight all became war correspondents, uh, much to their own surprise, foreign correspondents um, you know who didn't who didn't cover conflict, um, all all came to cover um, tremendous conflict and upheaval over many subsequent years, um, and then you know and then change has just kind of been continual since then. Um, even at home, um, our politics have changed. Um, you know, students at Georgetown, you know, were right. You know, right in the heart of the Capitol on January sixth of twenty twenty one. So we're we're witnessing a lot of change, and um, I think for me, my my kind of mission has been to really try to understand that um, as I've seen it unfold, and um, and there's great great honor in that,
0: and um, and I feel very fortunate. And how does living in conflict approach um, and inform your work and perspective in journalism? Yeah, that's such a good
2: question because the truth is I'm a big believer in journalists as observers and not as participants. Um, but when you live in a place in a place like, uh, you know, any anywhere in kind of, you know, Jerusalem, the West Bank, um, other parts of, of um, Israel or the Palestinian territories, you um, you know you are affected um, all the time. Um, you know the cafe down the street where I lived and would would go to often was blown up. Um, you know that you know right like right as I was on the street um, or covering um, you know bus bombings or missile raids or raids on people's homes, um, you know, you you are much closer and more personally affected um, by what's happening around you um, than would normally be the case. Um, I think being touched in that way personally helps you empathize with the people that you're covering. Um, Really being able to witness treatment of Individuals by authorities, by occupying authorities, by military per- personnel, um, by governments and their decisions, really helps you kind of understand a little bit more um, what their lives are truly about, in a way that um, I think is more informative, and um, and helps you kind of tell a more a more truthful truthful story. Um, And in a place like that, you know, that's a place where people's lives every day on every side of that conflict are touched by violence and migration and poverty and uh, true fear, uh, you know, real peril. Um, And that, that That's definitely very, very affecting um, for your work, but I think in a positive way overall.
1: Yeah, and like that must've been too to just see firsthand. Um, it must've been extremely like heart-wrenching to watch. And I can see how that would affect your work and make it a lot more powerful to the audience receiving that story. Um, And being a journalist in a conflict zone, how would you ensure your own safety?
2: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. And those those things changed over time. Um, In Jerusalem and and Palestine, parts of Israel and Palestine, you know, um, you weren't in harm's way in the same way that people came to be um, in Afghanistan and Iraq, journalists in Afghanistan and Iraq, although there were certainly um, lots of scary moments when I was there, which was um, from 1994 to 1999. Um, and I do have colleagues subsequently who um, were in real harm's way um, when covering that co- the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Um, and that that was that was scary, and people who did get um, who did get wounded or killed, um, especially Palestinian journalists. To be honest, who were really in harm's way. Um, and I think you know, as uh, for me, I would say the Iraq the Iraq War, the invasion in two thousand and three, um, changed things dramatically for American journalists. It's when they started to get you know sort of. Conflict area training. Um, they had, you know, chemical suits and gas masks and um, flak jackets um, and hard hats. In 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 Israel and Palestine, um, a lot of photographers and TV um, cameramen and crews would wear flak jackets and hard hats um, even back then. Um, but it became, it became very different in, in Iraq. And I think, um, and, and also I would say the other thing just in general for me, when I went to Iraq um, on a couple trips in 2003 and 2004, um, I kind of, I, I sort of lost my spidey sense. Um, there was a time when the conflict was changing so dramatically and the conditions on the ground were changing so dramatically that it was hard for me to tell just walking down the street kind of where my, where my security was, where my kind of safe spots were. Um, I didn't really, I couldn't really tell anymore. Um, the last night that I was in Baghdad in December of 2003, I had a real, a real run in with with uh, with what I would call sort of like, the, you know, that fear and a scary situation that you really can't, can't read right away. Um, it was uh, the middle of the night and I was fast asleep. I was supposed to leave Baghdad early the next morning, um, driving from Iraq into Jordan, into the capital of Jordan, into Oman. Um, and uh, I'm in a hotel in the center of Baghdad Uh, that is surrounded by the US military. In fact, the US military is protecting uh, the hotel uh, where a lot of Americans were staying. And remember this is sort of year one of invasion and occupation, it's December, 2003. And I hear this boom, boom, boom on my uh, hotel room door. Uh, Absolutely terrified me. I like sat, you know, sat up straight in bed. I didn't know what to do. And then again, the, the banging on the door and a loud American voice said, open this door right now. Um, so I, I leapt out of bed and I went to the door and I looked through um, the keyhole and there was no one there. And all of a sudden the voice said, open this door right now. And I said, I'm looking through the keyhole and I don't see anyone. And he said, okay. He said, I'm gonna walk right in front of you. He said, hold on. So I kept looking and all of a sudden um, a member of the US military in full, uh, full fatigues uh, with a very large weapon walked right in front of my door. And then he said, now open the door. And I did. And when I opened the door, there were four people pointing uh, guns at me and another member of the, all members of the US military and another one with, with uh, a dog, a search dog um, on a leash. And he said, ma'am, stand back, we're gonna search this room. Uh, and he did, all the hotel rooms had balconies um, that faced into a kind of an inner courtyard where the military was. And he searched my room and then he left and I, I became terrified um, the insurgency was in its third month in Iraq, and I thought, "Wow, the insurgents have come into the hotel." They said somebody is shooting at us from inside the hotel. That's what they said, and I thought, "Okay, the insurgents are here. This is terrifying." Um, I got I got dressed. I went downstairs early <laughs> with my suitcase to leave, um, and and um, organize the the long drive to Jordan. Um, and I ran into actually one of the, um, one of the um, troops who had searched my room and I said, are the insurgents in the hotel, did you find anyone? And then he told me, it's not the insurgents. He actually said that some members of the, of, um, the US company who were contractors for the military, they were allowed to drink. The US military was not allowed to drink. They were allowed to drink and they were drunk and they were shooting at troops down below protecting the hotel, almost like as a joke to kind of scare them. Um, anyway, it was, it was, it was just a, a good example of something that was frightening, that was unknown. Um, and it also just really, to me, brought home the lawlessness and, um, and the kind of turmoil that was rocking Baghdad in
0: that moment. Yeah, I can only imagine how scary that experience was. And now let's transition to another um, one of your highlights of your career, Shades of Mercy. Um, So what motivated you to investigate the issue of racial bias in presidential pardons in the first place?
2: I'm so glad that you brought that up. I'm really proud of that series. It was one of the most challenging um, that I've done in terms of investigative reporting. Um, and and it was really really important to me. Um, it started off uh, kind of in a in a surprising way, and I don't I don't want people to think that like it's true that reporters get like secret envelopes with like information inside because that really never happens. But in this case, it kind of did. Um, I was uh, a reporter, then an investigative reporter at ProPublica. I had left. Um, the Washington Post after um, wonderful years there as a national security reporter. And um, I got um, reached out to by uh, a source inside the Justice Department who told me um, that there was a problem with presidential pardons that the president himself was unaware of and that African-Americans were not getting pardoned at all. Um, so that sounded pretty amazing to me. What do you mean African-Americans are not getting pardoned? Um, and he told me they're, they're being rejected en masse, their requests and um, only white applicants are being approved almost entirely. Um, so I tried to figure out first off, First, I was like, "Wow, that's a big deal!" But then I thought to myself, "Wait a minute. I don't really know what the criteria is to pardon someone. I don't really know who's applying. You know, perhaps the people um, who are getting pardons, you know their um, their sentences were less severe, their crimes were less severe or violent. Um, I don't really know, but um, I need to figure out um, not who received a pardon, but who applied." um as a better measure to determine what that meant. Um, so actually over a pretty long period of time, um, with the help of sources that I developed, um, I got the entire list of every single person who had applied for a pardon, a presidential pardon, um, during the presidency of, um, of uh, President Bush, second president Bush, and his eight-year presidency. Um, hundreds and hundreds of people had applied all, from all over the country. And I had to develop kind of metrics to figure out um, how to level the playing field. So I could understand who sort of um, was kind of equal in terms of the offense and so forth um, and their application. Cause there's many things that go into the process including an expression of remorse, which is very important. Um, anyway, I put this, this whole thing together and it turned out that the source was a hundred percent right, and that the chances of um, an African American applicant being approved for a presidential pardon was statistically zero, um, which is pretty shocking. i um I spent, you know, a long time, more than a year working on this piece and found, the stories of you know a number of individuals, um, an incredible guy named Clarence Aaron, um, who'd been um, who'd been convicted um, as part of a drug conspiracy um, when he was in college. He was a football player. Um, he was like the first guy in his um, family to go to college. Um, he was really interesting, smart. Um, smart guy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, he wasn't the buyer, the seller, or the user of any drugs, and he was given three consecutive life sentences. Um, his application was supported by, you know, incredible lawyers, organizations, uh, the the former prosecutor of the case, the judge. Um, he had been a model inmate. Um, and still he was rejected by um, a pardon attorney who um, was systematically removing African-American applicants from, um, from consideration. Um, another person that I found this wonderful um, woman named uh, Serena Nunn, also she was 19 years old, um, was part of a drug conspiracy, very similar concept. And um, also, got a, a tremendously long sentence. Um, during her time in incarceration, she went to college and graduated. Um, she'd been nineteen when she was um, when she was convicted, and um, she was actually she actually had her sentence commuted um, by President Clinton, which is wonderful. Then she went to a top ten law school, to Michigan Law, um, and wanted to become. Uh, a federal public defender. Well, she needed another pardon. She needed two presidents to help her. Um, so her case was was really important too. Um, so I highlighted both of their cases. By the time the story ran, um, President Obama was in office, um, read these stories, commuted the sentence of Clarence Aaron from Mobile, Alabama, pardoned Serena Nunn so that she could be a federal public defender, and they fired the pardon attorney. Um, so <laughs> I think a lot kind of came out of that that was very meaningful and successful, both on the individual level, but just generally um for presidential pardons. And it it was very rewarding to work on a series in which there was kind of tangible impact in a positive way.
1: Yeah, uh, no, that's your, that story just shows firsthand, like it's so inspiring to see how your work really changed that girl's life. And it really br- exposed how like how the, our criminal justice system is really failing people of color and of certain socioeconomic status. And so as somebody who want, aspires to be a journalist, I find that really inspiring. And moving on now to our final piece of this interview is our lightning round. For first, to start things off, we wanted to ask what's one piece of advice you'd like to share with aspiring journalists, especially those at Georgetown?
2: Um, hold on to your integrity, be rigorous in your work and
0: have fun because it's a great job and career. And finally, you've been to many places. So what is your favorite city in the world? Okay, this is gonna be a very a surprising answer
2: and um, it's gonna have to be divorced from the current politics of, of the country. Um, but honestly, the most Kind of surprisingly romantic and beautiful city that I've been to and loved is Istanbul in Turkey. Um, it just has like multiple waterways and stunning architecture. Um, it's it's a really beautiful, surprising city. The Grand Bazaar, and um, you you see it and you can't even believe that it's real. Um, I there's so many cliches about how Turkey is. East meets West, but when you stand there um, in in Istanbul, sort of at the edge of one of the waterways, you really feel it.
1: Well, thank you so much for meeting with us today and spending your time to talk with us. I really enjoyed our conversation um, and I wish you the best of luck in your future and endeavors.
2: Thank you, same to you. I've enjoyed this so much. And um, the podcast is really, really
1: wonderful and well done and great reporting. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We hope you loved our conversation with Daphne just as much as we did. It was truly inspiring to hear firsthand about how her work as a journalist changed the course of people's lives. I agree. She definitely demonstrated
0: how journalism, done with integrity, can be a form of public service.
1: But before we go, make sure you follow us on social media at FlyOnTheWallPod on on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, you can email us at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. See you next time.